How can you get a home when the bank says no? This podcast is dedicated to the 1 in 10 homeowners denied each year by the banks. Welcome to the Pre-Approved Podcast. Welcome back to another episode. Today, we are going to talk through the paperwork for what a land contract or a contract for deed is. If you recall from the previous episode, we walked through what an option to purchase agreement is. And since the most common forms of creative financing outside of a traditional bank loan are rent to own via the lease options or contract for deeds, we wanted to go ahead and present this one as well. So for the contract for deed, here are the main categories that we're going to talk about. Number one, who drafts it up? Number two, the parties involved, the legal description, the contingencies, how title works, what the purchase price is, if there's any prepayment penalties, what happens if someone defaults, how do you handle real estate taxes, how do you handle insurance, how do you handle the condition of the property, and lastly, how to get the paperwork right for this type of transaction. So starting at the beginning, how does a contract for deed even get created? Nine times out of 10, this is a real estate attorney who specializes in real estate for your specific state because there's a lot of different laws and regulations and a real estate attorney is by far the most common way of getting a contract for deed written up. If it is not developed by a real estate attorney, there could be some questions on whether or not the seller actually knows what they're doing. So having an actual real estate attorney draft these up is really important. So once they draft it up, what does it look like? You know, on the title, it might say contract for deed or land contract. And this is going to look look like a very legal document where it's got the headings. It's got a bunch of maybe lawyer terminology into it. But let's try to break this down. It's going to say, OK, this is a contract for deed between party A and party B. And that's a very you know key piece is who do they do they own this home and who are they selling it to? And it's saying this is the legal description of the property. So instead of saying, you know, 226 Lancaster, this would say lot five, block four, Andrew Swenson's edition of the city of Moorhead, you know, for example. So that's the legal description, not the most more commonly known name. And so when we look at that, that's kind of the first major piece is who is this for? What's the legal description of the property that we're trying to convey via contract for deed? And if you want to know what a contract for deed is, feel free to uh, refer back to, I think it's episode eight on the differences between what a contract for deed actually is. And so now the contingencies are the next piece. It's basically saying, hey, is there anything in the way of making this transaction go forward? Is it contingent upon an inspection, an appraisal? Is there anything going on there that we would want a contingency for this type of property? The next is how is the title being conveyed? And so specifically in our contract for deeds, it will say that the seller warrants that the title to the property is only subject to the following exemptions. And that might be an existing lien. It might be any building or zoning, any mineral rights, any special assessments, but not that there's any other encumbrances to the title. And if there is, you're going to want to know about that just to make sure that you have free and clear title for what they have the right to give you away. And uh, full disclosure, I'm not a real estate attorney, so I'm giving my two cents on the documents that we've had real estate attorneys prepare for us. The next piece is in the event you're going to fully execute this contract for deed because the title still stays in the seller's name, even though you have equitable interest, there's going to be a delivery of the deed or evidence of title 
upon payment of this contract amount. And so what's going to happen is, let's say that you enter into a contract for deed for $120,000. You put $10,000 down and the rest of it you're going to pay off over the next 20 years. Well, at the end of 20 years or if you refinance and you want to pay off that principal, what does that look like? So it's just this is going to explain how that works, how the closing costs are getting updated, saying that, saying that the buyer is going to pay to update the abstract and do some title examination, but the seller is going to pay any recording fees to make the title marketable. So that just explains what's going to happen. Now, this next section, and again, any of these categories can be mixed around, but just going in the order that we see them, is what most people care about, which is the purchase price and the interest rate. So this is going to be specifically saying, okay, we are paying 120000 or whatever the number is, if there's any origination fees and how the down payment and the interest rate and the amortization schedule is going to work. So you could say, I, you know, like the example was I put down 120000 or I, it's a contract for 120000 We're putting down ten. We're going to make $800 payments for the next 20 years or we can refinance out. And that's a key piece for the next part which is what happens if you pay it back early. Some contracts can have a prepayment penalty of, you know, if you, if you had this contract for less than a year, you might have to pay a certain percentage. We don't have that in our contracts, but just something to look out for. The next is what happens if you do not make a payment? And this is where individual state law is going to come into effect. So if you miss a payment on a contract for deed, this is not the same as an eviction where there's like, oh, you missed a payment, you're out. Um, you are given more time to correct the remedy. And now this varies by state, but essentially you're going to want to read what happens is if you miss a payment. Just what does that contractually say that you are required to do? Maybe it's like a 15-day notice, a 30-day notice. Maybe it's a 90-day. Some It can be even like six months that you have to recoup all of your uh, past due payments to get ready. The next section is taxes and assessments. So who is paying the real estate taxes? So historically, how this will work is until the day that you close with the contract for deed, the seller is paying all the taxes for that given time period because they own the property. And then the seller, or excuse me, the buyer is going to pay for anything beyond that. So if your state pays the taxes for the year before or the year during, you're just going to want to make sure that some of that is cleared up beforehand. Moving on to the condition of the property, almost all contract for deeds are as is, saying that the seller does not warrant anything. It's just basically saying, hey, this is your property. You're doing the inspection. You take full ownership of this. There's not going to be some foundations or roof issues or something that you can come back to me and say, hey, you knew about this and, and you owe me that. So the condition of the property in this area is, is what most oftentimes we see. But just be sure to understand why you're, how you're buying the property, if it's quote-unquote as is or if it's subject to any other type of condition assessment. The next is who's taking care of insurance. And typically to ensure that the seller is being covered, the buyer or someone is required to have at least like a fire hazard insurance. Because remember, if the home's worth $130,000 and you've put down ten grand and the existing seller still is carrying you know that property almost on a on a payment to you if a fire happens you might be out 10 grand but the seller might be out 120 grand because if there's no insurance on it and they can't cover all those costs that would be a problem 
So what this is stating is just like you would have a normal mortgage is you are required to keep a certain amount of insurance on the property to keep everyone covered. And then there's a little bit of additional details on, okay, if an insurance claim needs to happen, who pays for what, how does the money get distributed, and so on. The second to last piece before we get into how to properly document this is the protection of interest and the ability to assign. So let's say that the seller is selling you this on a contract for deed. Can they give up their position to someone else? Or if you bought this on a contract for deed, can you assign your position to someone else? So let's say that you owe $100,000 after five years. Can you just give that equity payments and have someone else take over for you if that's what you wanted? And so there's some legal terms in there on what you're able to do and not able to do. Last but not least, what makes this officially binding? Now you could just verbally sign it, or sorry, verbally agree, or just physically sign it. And in most cases that would still hold up, but nine times out of 10, a contract for deed to actually be recorded at the county will need to be notarized. So this is from the seller and the buyer saying, hey, you were present at the signing of this, and this just adds an additional level of protection and security saying that this is a legally binding document. And so from there, once the contract has been notarized by all parties, this is now an official legal binding document. And now you can do one of two things. You can file this at the county, which will give you, as the buyer, more equitable interest in the home so that if the seller tried to sell the home, the title company might look at this and be like, hey, what's this contract for deed? We need to get this squared away so that the seller can't sell it. So that would be in your favor. However, I've heard from other mortgage lenders that if you don't file it, there may be some first-time homeowner benefits that if you just generally agreed to something and then executed a purchase agreement based on the terms of the contract for deed, that may help with your down payment assistant. Now, I am not advocating one way or the other. It appears one way is the, is the more traditional legal way of just get everything filed at the county and then once you go to the bank, you're technically doing a refinance, not a first-time homeowner purchase, which just gives you more security in the home so that something doesn't go squirrely. But if you're in a really trusted relationship with someone from party A to party B, and you're trying to get creative and you want to do a first-time homeowner application, then you might want to consider holding off on that. So hope you enjoyed this. I know it, it can be a little bit difficult going through a legal document, but figured being prepared to know what you're going to get into ahead of time can only help support and educate you on what option is right for you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode. You can always learn more by reaching out to us at homeequitypartner.com. Have a good day.